through our alphabet series, and we are to the letter F. Uh, how many of you liked that letter when you were in school? <laughs> we, you start out with A, and we've gone down to F. <laughs> you had just one, Howard, in school? Well, that... It was for orientation. You didn't have to do anything except be there. <laughs> well. The two subjects I never got an F in were lunch and recess. <laughs> Everything else I might have, but not lunch or recess. I like those. We are F, and we're going to talk about the family which, of course, is uh, an important subject in our day. You can be turning back to Genesis 1 again, where we'll start, Genesis 1 or 2, and uh, talk about the family a little bit. We, uh, we see some trends in our day. We're now in the 21st century, you know, 2015, almost 16 now, and a lot of water has gone under the bridge. Um, I, uh, I was thinking uh, back to, to my childhood. I, I was a teenager in the 60s. Um, some of you go back a little earlier than that. Uh, and, but in the 60s, it's interesting to me, I graduated from high school in 1968 because I was born in 1950, uh, the year Martin Luther King Jr., uh, was shot in 68, and that's when I graduated. And so just everything kind of exploded. You remember then, you remember the riots and the burning and the university uh, things and all of that that went on. And you know what's interesting to me is that those kids that I grew, we grew up with, those kids were kids of the what we call the great generation. Because their parents, my parents, and I think most of your parents, were basically grew up in Depression era times. And then those families that made it through the Depression era also were the ones who basically gave themselves in the, in the wartime for this country. I'm going to use... World War II a little bit, it's Veterans Day on Wednesday, and, and uh, I use an illustration in my sermon next, next hour. Wednesday is Veterans Day. I used to call it Armistice Day. It's also, it was my parents' uh, anniversary, their wedding anniversary. My dad said it was on purpose because he liked to call it Armistice Day, <laughs> but um, they were married in 44. Well, that generation... Came, did, they were just kids in the Depression, you know. Uh, I remember my mother uh, said that her mother gave her a dime just down Springfield on old Boonville Avenue uh, and said, go buy some milk or whatever it was. And on the way, she saw this homeless guy that didn't have anything, so she gave him her dime. Went back to proudly tell her mother that she gave this poor guy a dime, not knowing that's the only dime they had either, too, you know. Uh, her mother told her that story later, you know. So, the, and then they, they fight a war, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I like uh, this week to watch the History Channel, because I kind of like to watch 
these histories of, of these things. And so, you know, here, here was, in, in, uh, when we went to war in 41, when Pearl Harbor was born, I mean, 15, 16-year-old boys lying about their age just so they could get in the army, just so they could go to war. I mean, it was a real patriotism, you know, and we don't see that at all today. We wonder, you know, although there's a lot of volunteers, we have a volunteer army, and praise the Lord for those who do and, and, and uh, that. But, I mean, these, these boys were doing that, and most of them, not most of them, but half of them weren't going to come back. I mean, from what they were volunteering for. They didn't realize it at the time, but that's what would happen. That generation then comes into the 50s. You know, they, they come home, they get married, they have children. Uh, you know, the good old, the, the happy days of 1950, you know, and all. And, in, and then the 60s hit, and those parents, many of them, became the most liberal parents without discipline in the family, without control over their kids. And so my generation became the hippies of the 60s, the, the, the kids of those parents. It's a strange thing, isn't it? There's a lot of writing about this kind of thing. I have a book, if, you're, if, if you'd like to read it, called The Fourth, the Fourth Turning. And, it, and these guys have studied. They're not, even, they're not Christian men, just studied the cycles of those generations in about a 90-year cycle that go from one generation, go through four generations, and there's the same generation always fights the wars. And they always have, are followed by a generation like that, who is always followed by another generation, who is followed by the one where the collapse comes, and they're followed by the one that have to fight the wars again. And it has been that way since the founding of America. It's kind of an interesting cycle or phenomenon. Well, the family suffers during those times. And from, from the 60s, you know, I, I, I went back to one of my high school reunions. I don't know if you guys still go to your high school reunions. Uh, but that was enough for me, <laughs> you know, these kids I grew up with. I went back, and they're just... Uh, you know, uh, you know, smoking, drinking, you know, partying still 20 years later, you know, it's just crazy. So, you know, it, it, it's what, what has happened then is that now they run the asylum, <laughs> you know, they are the president and the senators and the congressmen and the professors in the university and the teachers in the school and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, somewhere it's going to have to cycle out of that uh, if we go on. Well, Christians ought to know better. And, and even in the 60s and in those kind of times, uh, there, a Christian family can still do right and can still follow what the Lord says and be okay in their family and their kids. Uh, a church can do what is right. That's what I'm going to preach about from Philippians chapter 2, the first few verses this morning. We can do right even in the time in which we live. Uh, but it's sad to see around us a society just disintegrate. And uh, now, <coughs> excuse me, now, you know, our, the Supreme Court, 
who are children of the 60s. And the reason we appoint them to a position on the Supreme Court is so that they will make the decisions they've grown up with, which is, of course, homosexual is right, homosexuality. Of course, legalizing drugs is right, you know. Of course, having no borders in a country is right. Of course, you know. Why? Because they were children of the 60s. They're our peers. And so now we, we live in a country where what, what our parents fought for is, or fought against, I should say, is assumed to be right in our generation. It's assumed this is what we should do and what we should believe. And even the family is suffering. I mean, when we can actually pretend that two men can be a family and two women can be a family, we pretend because you can't be, by the way. There is no such thing. You can, you can go out to your car and stand beside it and say, this is my wife, but you can say that all, as long as you want, but it isn't going to be. <laughs> it isn't going to make a family just because you say that. And so that, but that's what's going on. And we actually believe this can be the case. And that we can have actually, absolutely no boundaries to a family, no boundaries to morality. I mean, you know, uh, I don't, I don't watch, watch much TV other than news and some sports and history channel on this week of the year, <laughs> you know. But, but I know because I read, I know that the sitcoms and the other things that are coming in and feeding our kids and feeding this generation hours at a time depict anything but the normal family. And they're going to grow up thinking that that is normal. And we know that we face that. We watch our, our kids and our grandkids and, we, and we're alarmed. And we're... we're preaching at them on what to do. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. By the way, I had good news this morning, and, and you, you have had this kind of news too, and when you get it, it's great. And then, uh, actually, we just got to church. My phone rang. Matthew was on the phone. He said, Dad, Gabriel wants to tell you something. So I get on the phone. Gabriel says, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. You know, so when four and a half years old, you know, talks like he's 12, but when, you know, you hear that from your grandkids, right? There's no greater day than that. And so you just pray every day that the Lord will give them wisdom in raising those kids because someday they're going to have to be raising their kids in a pretty tough world. So what we do is important. Uh, you know, we are either parents or grandparents here. And, and what we think about it and what we pass on is very important. So let me mention uh, some things about the family in that, in that way. And I've got four words and some thoughts under these words. You know these words. First of all, marriage is commitment. The first word is commitment. There has to be a commitment there. <clears throat> Let's read Genesis 2, chapter 2, and, and uh, just verses 24 and 25 again. We, we could back up to verse 18 where this paragraph starts where, you know, God is, 
is uh, saying to Adam, is, is there anything here you'd like to live with? He says, nothing that I see. Then he says, well, I have to make something. <laughs> so he takes his rib, of course, and makes a woman. So, but, uh, and by the way, that, that is um, the first marriage right here. Verse 24 says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. So there is the leave, there's the commitment in that you leave where you were and you go to what you're going to be. And the, both the wife and the husband then make this commitment to one another. <coughs> and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. In a time where there was no sin, there was no shame. And uh, yet there's marriage. Before, before even sin entered in, into the world, God created this thing called marriage, this family, because even if they had not sinned and gone on living in the Garden of Eden the way God wanted them to, they still would have been a family, and it would have been a, a man and a woman. So <clears throat> this is the first thing. Now, commitments are made uh, God makes God makes commitments. He he makes them to his creation. When he creates this world, we find in these chapters, he says, "Now I'll I'll put the planets out here and the stars, the sun, the moon, the stars for times and for seasons, and it will always be that way." <clears throat> we don't believe in uniformitarianism, but we believe that nature has a uniformity to it. Day after day, season after season, uh, will be the same because God's made a commitment to that. He makes a commitment to our salvation, uh, in in uh, to us as as His children that He never revokes. Well, marriage is a commitment we make with God as a witness, and so we make that before Him, and then we make it to one another. So we make the commitment to God. And we make the commitment to one another. So marriage is a, is a commitment. Now, I don't have to tell you, but I, I should include it with this sermon, that here we see in these verses in Genesis that marriage is between a man and a woman, right? I mean, that's pretty clear. Uh, so in, verse 20, uh, in chapter 1, verse 28, uh, he created them male and female, and it's in Matthew 19 where Jesus quotes this when he's asked about divorce, but he says in the beginning, God created, have not you read, God created them male and female? So Jesus quotes this verse, by the way, putting his stamp of approval on what Genesis says. Genesis 1, by the way, that's unique, the Son of God himself uh, quotes from these passages, literally. So to say that marriage can be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is to, Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, against nature. Remember? What is against nature? And it is unnatural. And, and folks, how true that is. You, I, you know, <clears throat> two men and two women is unnatural. It's not the way God made you. We know that. As a matter of fact, they know that. And the witness of God is inside them, and they know that. 
as I have said before, it's like these crazy guys who, who walk around and buckle their britches, you know, around their thighs. There's something unnatural. I mean, God made you in a way that if you buckle your pants up here, your belly button, they won't fall down. But if you buckle them down here, they're going to fall down. But you'll see a guy running down the street holding on to his pants because they're down there. I don't, you know, it's not natural, and they know it. But what, so why? Because there are pressures in this world upon them from culture and from friends and from peers and from whatever, and fallen people give in to that all the time. In, in those little areas and in bigger areas like homosexuality, they give in to it. That's too bad. So one man and one woman, of course. Now, secondly, under commitment, all of God's institutions meet opposition. Satan is out to destroy them all. <clears throat> Not only the family, but Satan's out to destroy Israel, isn't he? And he has been after that since, the, since God made a covenant with Abraham, and he will be after that through the tribulation period to the, until he's you know, locked up for a thousand years, and then after that he'll try it again. He is out to destroy Israel. And he is out to destroy governments. He's out to destroy the church. And uh, he will attack the church in every way he can, and there's a lot of attack on that today. So there's an attack on the family, of course. And we, you know, because it's hard to have a family, because it's hard to hold on to what the Bible says about a family, doesn't mean it's wrong. It, it means that there's always opposition to what is right. This is a fallen and broken world. Thirdly, under commitment, the family is the best contribution you can make to your generation. Your family is the best contribution you can make. And, and those of you who are now at this point in your life looking back on it all, I mean, you're living alone, uh, your kids are gone, you have grandkids, maybe they're married and you have great-grandkids, some of, some of you do. Of all the things that you have done for the Lord in your lifetime, and I hope it's a lot, and serving the Lord personally and the things that you've done, nothing will be greater than what generations after you can accomplish because you're multiplying yourself in them, right? And that's why uh, the family is important. Uh, you know, th though they say the, the uh, fruit doesn't fall far from the tree <laughs> and they will be much like you and like their parents still... Uh, it's important. It's important because children will be good citizens. I, I'm talking about Christian children of Christian parents in Christian families will be the best citizens of, of any place in the world. They will be honest people. They will be moral people. They will do right. So they will be good citizens. Secondly, they will be good neighbors because they're moral people, because they care about uh, their neighbor, because they're helpful kind of people and giving kind of people, they will be the best neighbors. And they will have the best news of anybody because they'll have evangelism. What will come out of their mouth is talk about God and about Jesus Christ and about what God can do for you, and that's the best thing that could happen to any society. So the, the best thing that you can do in your generation, 
is to give your generation Christian kids and then grandkids. And if you've done that, and, and should, should I put a caveat in here, and maybe I should. Of course, there's going to be disappointments to all of us. Like, you know, things aren't going to always just be perfect for our kids and our grandkids. But if you do what's right, there's a time when they have to take responsibility then for their life and their decisions. But if you have given them proper directions and, and proper reasons and they go against that, then, then they stand before God for that decision, not you. So we understand that. But this is where prayer uh, holds up, folks. And as I've, as I've said often, I know that my mother prayed for me every day of her life until she died. And one of the things that hit me the hardest when my mother died in 2001 is, uh-oh, there's not that prayer for me every day now. So let's be faithful in doing that too because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much with God, with our kids and our grandkids, and that's important. So commitment, first of all. Secondly is the word subordination. Subordination means that there's a place for the husband, a place for the wife, even a place for the family in society, in the church, and, and, and so forth. You know, in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him, a helper that fits him. We know that, that this is right. And in verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. He, in verse 23, she's called woman because she's taken out of the man. And I'll quote you some verses in a minute from the New Testament where Paul often goes back to this subordination arrangement. Now, the first one is, let me, give you, let me say four things under, the, under this if you're writing. Number one, marriage follows God's pattern. Marriage follows God's pattern. So in 1 Corinthians 11, 3, and in, and in half of that chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, it deals with this. But Paul says, I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's a subordination among the Godhead. Isn't that interesting? Because we know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. They're all equal. And you wouldn't say that any one of them is less God than the other. That would be heresy. And yet, there is a subordination among the Godhead in that they each take their function and their role, and they do it without crossing over into one another's role. So it's the role of Jesus Christ to do what he did, but not of the Holy Spirit's. And now that Jesus Christ has ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is in the world, he's doing his role and Jesus is not doing that role. And that's the way the Godhead has worked. And so marriage mirrors the Godhead in many ways. And it, it's a good thing. I mean, the, one of the reasons why it's good for children to have a father in the home, by the way, 
is how else do we get some kind of a concept of our heavenly father and speak of God as a father? If there's not a mirror of that, an illustration of that in the home. So there's lots of reasons for this. God, you know, our, our fathers disciplined us according to their own uh, ways, Hebrews 12 says, but he for our prophet. So we're disciplined by our parents, and what do we learn from that? That is good for us, and we're disciplined by God, and that's good for us too. All of these lessons we learn from the family. So the, the way the family is arranged with husband and wife is a good thing. So number two, husbands and wives then have functions. Let me read you these verses which uh, you will know. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, these are our functions. This is the way we are as husbands and wives. 1 Peter 3, 5-7, After this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's with a small L. I haven't tried that one in my home, but, uh, you know, honey's good enough for me. <clears throat> but, but then he says, Whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as to the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. All of these things in our proper role, doing the, the things the right way, so that we have a right relationship with God and our prayers aren't hindered. 1 Timothy 2, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, that is, not to take that role, that leadership role. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. He goes back to Genesis here, like Christ did often. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Interesting thoughts from the apostle Paul. And it's under inspiration, by the way. Feminists today like to say, yeah, but Paul wasn't married, you know? What did he know? Now, first of all, Paul may have been married at one time, and, and it's very likely that he was until he became a believer, and then she was gone. Uh, very likely even to be in a position of Phariseeism like he was in without being that. But Nonetheless, whether he was ever married and knew a family relationship or not, this is under inspiration. It's given to us by God, not just by Paul. And I've read you words from the Lord and from Peter and from Paul here. So th this, this headship <coughs> simply means taking your, the place that is proper. I've used this illustration, you know, be, be subject unto your husbands is the word meaning to be ranked under as if we were speaking of, uh, of military rank. Uh, I had coffee with Milburn 
earlier this week, and uh, he was telling me how that in all the time he spent in the service, he was a private first class. But in Korea, no one wore stripes or stars or anything because it would be dangerous. So when you went out on patrol, it was all generic. And so, but since he was so good at it, they always made him the point man, which a sergeant should have taken. But no one knew he wasn't a sergeant. He was the best at it, so they put him there. And uh, when he said at one time a new sergeant came to the company, they were ready to go out on patrol, and the guy said, we're not going to follow you, we're going to follow him. Because <laughs> he's good at it. So, And at the end, when uh, he was brought in before his superiors, his superior said, you've done all this, and you're a PFC? You're a private first class? Couldn't believe that he was. Well, again, function and ability are not necessarily the same things. And all of you men know that your wife's smarter than you are. <laughs> and, and all of you know that she runs the house in a way that you could not, nor do you want to. <laughs> but that's okay, because if you gave her a lawnmower and sent her out to the front yard, you'd say, honey, let me do it. You can, you know. Okay, so we all have our function. We know what we're supposed to, it doesn't mean that smart or more talented or, or, or better in a particular area, it means that, uh, like in a military organization, if you don't have the ranks and you don't pay attention to them uh, when you need to, then it's going to be a mess, a big mess, kind of like our government is right now, you know, truly, because they can't stay within their function. Okay, so subordination means husbands and wives has function. Thirdly, subordination means uh, that it is of function, not essence, and, and this is a repeat, but meaning if I go back to the last words of 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life. I think one of the biggest mistakes that, that especially young couples make, and sometimes we make it any time in our marriage, is that, that we forget that we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. I think if a husband and wife could get that through their head, even before you got married, you married a believer, right? Right? Before you got married, this was your sister. This was your brother. If you saw, if you talked to them on the street, if you had them over to your house, how would you treat a, a sister or brother? How do you treat guests when you have them over? You treat them better than you do one another. And why? Because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why. And then we forget that so are we as husbands and wives. We don't treat, we don't treat a child of God that way. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you th this little story. Maybe I have sometime, but, um, you know, I, I've only done an average amount of marital counseling. Uh, 
mostly because God has given me great people <laughs> I didn't have to do that much with. But, but I remember one time, this is out in Colorado, that a couple came in, and they're a good couple. As a matter of fact, I'd, uh, I'd seen them come into the church and join the church and so forth, and they were having problems. And so they come in and, and sat on the couch in my office, and we began to talk, and they just started screaming at each other. <laughs> And disagreeing and contradicting and back and forth. And finally, I just, I stood up and said, we're done. And you guys need to leave. And when you can talk to each other as brother and sister in Christ, you come back and see me. And I made them leave. I would have flunked my psychology class, folks, I'm telling you. I would have been, would have been out the door. But about a week later, they come back into the office and they simply said, you know, that was the thing we needed to hear. We needed to be told that we're not even acting like Christians. Isn't that something? The very first thing, the very simplest thing. All right. So subordination is function, not necessarily essence. And, and fourthly then, because I've jumped ahead, remember that you are brother and sister in Christ. All right, so number four. All right, so there's commitment, there's subordination. Thirdly, there's propagation. So... Uh, we are told in Genesis 1, 27, after God made the male and female, that in verse 28, he said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. L the word literally is just fill up the earth and subdue it, have dominion. And so uh, a few things here. Number one, this is God's pattern for all things. So he made the animals to reproduce. He made plants to reproduce. He made he made everything, the seasons cycle, everything operates this way and the family operates this way. So the reason why there are other generations besides Adam and Eve is because they had children. And it happened to be a man and a woman that had children, by the way. And that will always be the way it has to be, of course, because that's the way God created things. And so they are to fill the earth, which we have, uh, pretty much. In Psalm 128, remember, children are a heritage of the Lord then. So God gives you these children, and, and, and when that child is born, there is a soul that is eternal, that is made in the image and likeness of God. At the, at the moment of conception, by the way, with all the DNA that they'll ever have at that moment, and this, this child then will live forever somewhere. And then that child will grow up and be what you are and do what you do. I mean, this is, propagation is God's method and God's will for the family. Secondly, propagation demands responsibility of nourishing or nurturing, we might say. It demands this responsibility. Ephesians 5 Raise up your children in what? In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have to train them. Uh, I, I know why God let us have children when we were young, because we had energy. <laughs> and then let us have grandchildren when we were old, because we're a little wiser now. 
But and I wouldn't trade places with those either. I mean, you know, you remember those long nights. You remember uh, the feedings and the changing of diapers and the and the waking up, you know, three or four times or more a night. You remember all of that. It takes it takes nourishing. It takes work, and then the discipline, and then the training, and then the saying no and the saying yes, and and all of that that goes on all the way up to their adult years where you hope you can let go of them, you know, as arrows in the quiver, happy is the man that has his quiver full of them, but you put that arrow in a string, you've carved it, you've whittled on it, you've chipped away at that arrowhead, you have spent hours and hours making one arrow, you pull it out of the quiver, pull it back and let it go and it's gone. All of that work and it's gone. Well, one day, you see them say, I do, to somebody else, and they're gone. And you may still have some touch with them, but I mean, they're on their own. And we hope that the arrow flies straight. We hope that all the whittling and carving we did on it makes it fly as it ought to fly. So it demands that responsibility. Thirdly, propagation requires long-suffering. <laughs> long-suffering. In other words, why do you discipline? Why do why did you discipline at a certain point, which was hard on you and it made your child cry? You didn't enjoy it. Why did you do this? <laughs> made you feel bad and made them cry. What in the world? It, it wouldn't make sense if it weren't for long suffering, right? We know what has to be done for sake of what's down the road. We know we have to do this now because that's coming down the road. You know that. The, the child doesn't know that. But you're having to train them the way your parents trained you. So it takes, propagation takes also this long-suffering. Let me move to the last point, and that at number four, and that's longevity. It's kind of building on that last thought. Longevity. Marriage is longevity. In other words, there's the newlywed stage where you learn a lot about life and one another. And as I, I won't say that, but, uh, you know, well, I will. You know, if people say puppy love leads to a dog's life or, you know, uh, you, you know many, a, many a man has fallen in love with a dimple and made the mistake of marrying the whole girl, you know. Well, you know, everything's bright and rosy on the honeymoon, you know. Everything, everything's going great in those first few uh, weeks, months, years. But, you know, that's good, too. We've got to be newlyweds. And we've got to have that time. And, and matter of fact, for the rest of our lives, we look back on it and laugh and, and we look at our pictures and have the memories and, okay, good. Uh, then, secondly, there's the parenting stage. And so that part of life, that tough part, again, you're working long hours. Maybe, maybe both of you are working or working a couple jobs and you know, staying up all night with kids that are crying and then the education process and the, all, the running around and all of that. And uh, there's that part of life. And then there is the grandparenting part of life, the example. So uh, in light of those three things, number one, build a strong foundation. 
So if we can say anything to young parents, what do we say? We say, in those first years, build the foundation. I mean, habits, beliefs, convictions, do's and don'ts, discipline uh, rules, all of the things that you do, what you decide as, even as a couple, you know, maybe we've done this, but, uh, but we need to stop doing that now. We need to have a family now. You know, it's kind of common for, you know, here's this guy and he's used to running out with his buddies and playing ball and, you know, doing all of this and spending all the hours away. And here she is used to, you know, running off with her girlfriends and doing this and that. You can't live as a couple like that. You have to give some of that up, right? You have to say, now we're the the ones that are going to spend time together. We're going to do these things. Secondly, when it comes to the parenting years, be disciplinarians. That is called chastisement. I remind you that the word chastisement in the Bible comes from paideia, child training, pediatrics. And chastisement, we usually think of negative, but it's both positive and negative. It's the, it's the training that goes into those years. We have to be. That's where families, That again, I gave you the illustration. I, I guess that great generation largely that, that paid such a price felt like after they had paid the price for the war and they had kept the world free, they didn't need to do any more work. And they forgot to train their own kids. We have to do that as a church too and as Christian parents. And then lastly, in the, in the grandparenting years, be examples of the faith. And David writes in Psalm 128 again that you may see your children and your children's children and be blessed so that you can enjoy the later years. But regardless of what has happened in between, your children, even if they seem rebellious right now, if your grandchildren do, where else are they going to see an example of, a, of Christian thought than in you? And if you say, well, they've gone off the deep end and I can't do anything, yes, you can. You can be the example, and you always have to be the example. That's what they need. So always be that is the point. And so uh, I, I would end with a reference to 1 John uh, 2, where uh, you know John, in writing his letter, Uh, says to the church, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning, that you are the fathers and the mothers, and you have known from the beginning. I write unto you young men when you're young. You have overcome the wicked one. And I write unto you little children because you've known the father. So he says again, I write unto you fathers because you've known him that's from the beginning. There's that time in your life. I write unto you young men Those young people and couples raising their kids, you are strong. The word of God abideth in you. You have overcome the wicked one. It's a battle in life in those days. And lastly, again, I write unto you, uh, little children, because you've known the Father. So that's our example. That's our picture. That's a picture of a church. Because we meet together today like all churches do, and there will be all sizes and shapes and all ages, and rightfully so so that uh, time goes on, and we're all connected because of these families. So let's ask God to give us wisdom in doing it. Father, thank you for our, our time, and we, we pray, Father, that uh, though most of us standing in this room today are uh, 
parents and grandparents and some great-grandparents. So bless us, help us, Father, to uh, do right at this stage in our life and throughout our lives that we might bless our generation and be blessed of you. Well, thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being in class today.